If you would, find your way in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We will be picking up with our final message in Luke 9. It's been, a, it's been a long series through this one particular chapter. It's a chapter that's so rich in its call to discipleship. But today we'll specifically be picking up in verse 57 of Luke chapter 9. And so, find your way there. And I just want to share with you a message that I've titled, No Sugar Coating on This Savior's Call. No Sugar Coating on This Savior's Call. We're specifically going to be seeing, as we come to the end of Luke chapter 9, some particular warnings from Jesus related to the demands of discipleship. We're going to see him encountering three individuals sequentially, and each of them has this similar command to follow Jesus. And each of them replies in a different sort of way. But as we gather our thoughts around this topic of no sugarcoating on this Savior's call, I just want to tell you about a, a story I heard. One day, I heard of some passengers who were on this small commuter plane, and they were all boarded up, and they were waiting for their flight to leave. Now, that's when they saw two men who boarded the plane, and as they walked to the front, they were wearing dark sunglasses and pilot's uniforms. Now, one of them had a seeing-eye dog, and the other one had a cane and was just tapping his way around. As he started tapping, he tapped on down the, the aisle towards the passengers. And one of the, one of the flight attendants went up and directed him back around. And they both disappeared into the cockpit. Well, there was a little bit of nervous laughter, as you might imagine, from the folks who were gathered there on the plane, like thinking, is this some sort of joke? What's going on here? Well, the... the Two men who walked into the cockpit continued to close and latch the door, and then the plane started moving, and it started accelerating, and it started going down the runway. And as the people who were seated, seated over at the edges of the plane, over by the window seats, looked out, they could tell that at the end of the runway, there was this large body of water. So as the plane continued to accelerate, and did not lift off, they began to find themselves in a panic concerning this matter of whether or not they would take off. They thought they might, in fact, plow directly into the water. And as they got closer and closer, suddenly the people within the plane began to scream out in a panic state. And at that moment, the plane lifted into a gentle liftoff in the air. Eventually, the passengers settled down, and they convinced themselves that this must have just been some sort of prank. Oh, those pilots really pulled one over on us. Meanwhile, up in the cockpit, the co-pilot spoke to the pilot, and he said, you know, one of these days, those people are going to scream too late, and we're all going to die. <laughs> Sometimes we simply do not realize what we are getting ourselves into. Whether it's a plane controlled by someone else or a job or a relationship or a task that we may choose to undertake, often we do not have as much information as we would like when we decide to make a commitment. 
And the difficulty of knowing what we're committing ourselves to is often complicated by individuals and organizations who hide away the important details of what we are committing ourselves to do in obscure language. We're used to individuals who sugarcoat the things they want us to commit to. And so rather than considering those commitments based solely on their merits and the sacrifices that they command, we're so often given a perception of something that is sweeter than it actually is on its own because it's been sugarcoated. Pastor Stephen Cole wrote about his experiences when he committed to military service several years ago. And here's what he had to say. He said, when I joined the Coast Guard Reserves, the recruiter was not exactly honest. Honesty got in the way of their recruitment quotas, so it wasn't high on their priorities. The recruiter learned that I liked to read, so he told me that there was a library on the base. What he didn't tell me is that no recruit could go there until he had earned the privilege, and that no one could possibly earn the privilege before the sixth week in boot camp, and then it would only be for an hour a week. One guy became the laughing stock of the base when he showed up for boot camp with his fishing pole and water skis because the recruiter had told him that the base was on an island, which was true, and that you could fish and water ski there, which was also true that a person might do that, but false if that person was a recruit. Sometimes when individuals seek to gain a following or seek to grow a crowd or seek to meet some protocol or some established number that must be met or seek to sell a product. Sometimes individuals doing these things choose to present that which they want others to pursue in a sugar-coated way. They don't disclose the fine print. They don't tell about the potential discomforts and the perils that may be associated with the commitments that they want you to make. And our world has its share of sugar-coating salesmen who want to lead us into commitments that we have not fully considered. But in today's passage, we're going to see that Jesus is no sugar-coating salesman. Jesus doesn't withhold the fine print. When Jesus calls you to follow him, he wants you to know all the things that you are committing yourself to do by making that commitment. As I mentioned, this will be our ninth and final sermon on Luke 9. This chapter has been so rich with this theme of following Jesus, and today's passage is no exception. So, If you have your Bible and you are able to stand, I would ask that you would do so, that we might honor the reading of God's Word as we dive into Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go 
and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Also another, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As we dig into this passage a little bit deeper today, I want to share with you three types of insufficient discipleship that are on display in this passage. I mean, we've got such a natural division here in this passage in that there are two verses that are, that are assigned to three sequential individuals, six verses in all, and Jesus is dealing with the issue of discipleship, dealing with the issue of following him. And the first type of insufficient discipleship that we see in the first individual who appears here is that Jesus deserves and demands more than your convenient discipleship. Convenient discipleship is what's so richly on display here in this first case. Now, first, I want us to take note of the word follow that appears in these verses. It appears in verse 57, and then again in verse 59, and again in verse 61. It is the thread that ties these six verses together. And in all three cases... The subject is following Jesus. Now, the original Greek word that's translated follow three times here in our English translations is a combination of of, a prefix that indicates union or likeness with something and, and then a word which means road or way. So we can see how this word follow literally in its original language meant to walk the same road or to accompany someone. And this word on its own begs a question of each and every one of us. Are you willing to walk the same road as Jesus? Jesus makes it clear that if anyone wishes to come after him, then he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Jesus. That's just some of the rich language that we've seen here in Luke chapter 9 as we've journeyed through this passage. And every Christian is called to follow Jesus. This is not exceptional Christianity that Jesus is calling just a select few of us to own. This is normal, everyday Christianity. Jesus isn't saying, do this, follow me, and you'll earn your salvation. We could never earn what he freely gives to us by his grace on the cross of Calvary and through the empty tomb. He freely gives these things. But there's a very real sense in which the faith that we're called to have in him is an abandonment to ourselves. When he calls for us to believe in him, we are placing our trust in him and not in ourselves. And so when he calls for us to believe, we are are responding in a way that is faithful, a way that entrusts all that we are to him. Our very lives are in his hands and so the sort of following that jesus calls his disciples to in these verses is the sort of following that ought to come naturally through every person who has placed his or her faith in jesus this is what naturally occurs for the one who has abandoned his own eternity and has chosen to follow jesus that's not to say that we won't get this wrong from time to time 
Jesus asks us to entrust everything to him, but there are thousands of decisions that we make each and every day in which we live that trust out. I think a lot of times we get the impression that, that coming to him is like writing out a, a $10,000 blank check or writing out a check for the entirety of your inheritance and all that you have in your bank and, and bringing it and laying it before him. And there's very much a real sense in which when we come to Christ, we are saying, all that I have, all that I am is yours. But the reality is that that commitment is lived out in a thousand different decisions every day. And so it's like we take that $10,000 check to the bank, and we get it all back in, in quarters, such that we then find the opportunities to make the decisions throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year, throughout our lives that show that we are indeed entrusting all that we are to Christ in that moment. And sometimes we get those decisions wrong. I mean, P Peter, for example, was clearly a disciple of Jesus. No one doubts that Peter was saved. Yet Peter stepped forward like this man in this passage here one day, and he said in John 13, 37, he said, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. I mean, that's a pretty stern commitment that Peter is making. But Jesus knew Peter better than that. So in the very next verse, we find that Jesus said to Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. You see, Peter had some tests that were coming up. And in those tests, he would prove to be a failure. But Jesus did not, for that reason, cast Peter away I say that to inform you that it's not your superb performance in following Jesus that buys you eternity this passage is not Jesus teaching us how to earn our own salvation but it is for us this evaluation grid by which we can consider ourselves in our following of him he is worthy of being followed and in the thousands of decisions that we are making in our lives we, are, we need constant evaluation. We need adaptation. We need to be sure that we are walking in his path, pursuing his will. And so we must trust that he is worthy of all of these things. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of entrusting our eternity, eternity to him. Now, if you don't think that's so, if you're not living and following him because you don't believe that he's worthy of being entrusted with these things, then my friends, you have fallen short of what he calls you to by faith. Something's out of order. But in the same way, if our lives are not showing that in light of the fact that we believe that we are making our decisions in pursuing him, then we need correctives like this passage to get us back on track. Now, I've got to confess that as a Christian pastor, pastor, when I encounter someone like this man who appears in verse 57, I'm pretty ecstatic. I, I mean, if, if, if someone were to come to me with these very words, I would be elated. This guy comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, if somebody comes up here at the end of the service today and says, I will follow Jesus wherever he goes, I'm going to be ecstatic. What greater thing could you give your life to? That is a noble ambition. 
But there's something that Jesus can do that Jeremy can't do. Jesus can see through actions. He can see through words into the motives that a person has in his or her heart. He knows what's in a man, the Bible says. He knows your heart. Man looks at the outside, but God looks on the heart. And Jesus sensed that there was something lacking in this man. So he responds as only Jesus could. He actually tries to talk this guy out of following him in the way he had in mind. And what what did Jesus see in this man? Well, Jesus' words give us an idea. Now, Luke doesn't record it, but over in Matthew 8, Matthew records this same encounter, and and Matthew mentions that this man was a scribe. Now, the scribes were members of the upper middle class in Israel. They were entrusted with kind of the religious traditions and interpreting the law. It was their job to make the copies of the manuscripts of the Old Testament Bible and to, to make those available to individuals so they knew God's law well. When individuals had a dispute over the law, they would go to the scribes, and this earned for them a pretty high standing in society. Now, as a whole, the scribes were hostile to Jesus because Jesus challenged their false traditions. They had added a lot of things on top of the Word of God and were trying to hold individuals to those traditions rather than just to His Word. And yet this man was was willing, apparently, to give up a lot of things because following Jesus for him would have put him at odds with that group that he had formerly belonged to, that group of the scribes that group of the religious elites. But Jesus could see a deficiency in this man. Jesus saw a motive. Jesus saw an expectation that needed to be put to death in this man. Apparently, this man didn't expect that following Jesus would mean forsaking a good bed. Here, Jesus performing great miracles and drawing massive crowds and generating tons of excitement is surely capturing the attention of people who are throughout this area in Israel that he is now traveling through. And surely this scribe has seen some of these miraculous things that Jesus is doing. And in the midst of all of that joy, all of those miracles, all of that great throng of people who are gathered everywhere that Jesus goes, this man must have gotten the impression, let me get in with this guy. He's popular. He's powerful. If I want a good life, I'd better follow him. I'll bet following him will be a very convenient endeavor. But Jesus' words set this scribe straight because Jesus deserves and demands more than simple, convenient discipleship. And to mistake Jesus' ability to draw a crowd and to exercise power to perform miracles as an indication that those who follow him on earth will experience the good life here and now, that's a mistake, my friends. Jesus emphasizes this by describing how he, unlike the foxes and the birds of the air, has no place to lay his head. You see, Jesus had no place to lay his head because he had left his home. He set up his tent And where did he choose to set up his tent? He chose to set up his tent where the need was. If grace was most needed in an uncomfortable place, that's the place where Jesus 
had determined that he would be working. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we find that he truly did not have any place to lay his head. We talk about it every Christmas, how at his birth, there was no room for Jesus in the inn. In his adulthood, he was rejected by Judea. He was cast out by Galilee. He was begged by the people of Gadara to leave their country. Just last week, we saw that Samaria refused to allow him to pass through. When the one through whom all things were made stopped lo- stooped low to visit his creatures with this grace, they snarled back at him. And how did they respond? They yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Even when the heavenly father looked upon his son on the cross, he forsook him as Jesus bore the weight of the guilt and the shame of our sin as a part of the design that he would bear the curse that we rightfully deserve. And life for the Son of God on earth was no convenient life. And if you're making plans to follow Jesus, be sure that there's no guarantee for convenience for you either. The depth of Christ's willingness to deprive himself for the sake of others, for the sake of you, for the sake of me is so richly on display in this passage. He made the foxes and he made their holes. He made the birds and he made the things that they comprise their nests out of. He could have made quite a bed for himself. But that's not the road that Jesus chose. He lived without so that he could provide what was needed to those who had a need. As John MacArthur said, the creator had just a few, had had fewer creature comforts than the animals he had created. Jesus employed his power not to make his road comfortable, but to save those whom he encountered along the road from greater comforts for all of eternity. He has saved from this great discomfort that is looming for any of us who is at enmity with God. Jesus saw not to build up for himself a comfortable ministry, but he sought to put himself in the uncomfortable places so that he could win those who needed his comfort. And as you know, there's a lot of false teachers When it comes to what Jesus wants for you in this life, many of them appear in daily televised sermons and they preach a false gospel that says all you need to do is name it and claim it. They tell you that Jesus wants you to be rich. They tell you that Jesus wants you to have your best life now. No, Jesus wants you to die to yourself and to live for him. Jesus wants you to forsake the best things that this world has to offer and live with a steadfast hope in greater things that heaven has to offer for eternity. Jesus wants you to put convenience on the back burner to obedience. And having given given ourselves over to Christ, we should be stepping outside of convenience we should be stepping outside of our comfort zones well how can we do that how can we sacrifice what is convenient for the sake of being obedient 
Well, it may mean for us associating with people we previously saw as uncomfortably different or even with people who might be threatening to us. It may mean helping the homeless at a soup kitchen or ministering to the needs of prisoners. It may mean being seen in places or with people that society looks down on. It may mean moving to a foreign country, or it may simply mean breaching the subject of salvation with a group of skeptical friends. The point is that we should not ease up on serving Christ merely because it may seem inconvenient. We must be willing to place ourselves in new situations, inconvenient situations, all for the sake of seeking his kingdom advance. Because Jesus deserves and demands more than your convenient discipleship. That's the first type of insufficient discipleship. Here's the second one. Jesus deserves and demands more than your delayed discipleship. On the surface, I don't see anything wrong with the request of this second man that Jesus encounters as he and his disciples are traveling along the road. In verses 59 and 60, Jesus commands this man to follow, but it seems like, at least on the surface level, that he simply wants to go and bury his father. That's an important thing to do. That's an honorable thing to do. One of the Ten Commandments is that we should honor our fathers and mothers. And Jesus didn't come to abolish the law that was based upon those commandments. He came to fulfill the law, the Bible says. Writing later to his young disciple in the faith in 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says that those who do not take care of their own families are worse than unbelievers and have denied the faith. So when we see Jesus' words to this man who simply seems on surface level to want to bury his father, we're presented with a little bit of a challenge. What gives here? Well, I think the real issue is that this man's father was not actually dead at this point. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day were pretty quick to bury their dead. In fact, that often occurred on the same day. And I don't believe that Jesus is bursting into a funeral here at this point. If this man's father had passed away on this day, he would have been with his father. He would have been in the process of burying him, not somewhere else where he would have encountered Jesus out along the road. And, and in fact, for the Jews, burying the dead was a religious duty that kept men living close to their fathers until they had passed away. Religious rituals had exceeded the command of God. They were trying to do a good thing, but they had taken it beyond what God had commanded. Such that if you were going to be a good Jew, if you were going to be respected in the eyes of the other Jews around you, you were going to stay near your home into adulthood so that you could ensure that your father was taken care of until he went to the grave. G. Campbell Morgan once told about a visitor to the Middle East who encountered a similar situation. This foreign traveler needed a guide for his travels. So he sought to enlist a young Arabic man as his guide. But the Arabic man told this traveler that he could not go with him because he had to bury his father. Well, hearing this, the traveler thought, oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. He offered his condolences to this Arabic man. 
But he soon, soon he learned that this young man's father had not died. This, this man was simply indicating that he intended to stay near his father so long as his father was alive and wouldn't consider other commitments until his obligations to his father were over. This man was offering to Jesus a particular type of discipleship. He was offering to Jesus delayed discipleship. The sort of discipleship that says, let me take care of this thing first and then I will follow you. This man had his priorities out of order. We can see the ordering of his priorities, in fact, by how he uses the word first there in verse 59. When Jesus tells this man to follow him, the man says, The Lord permit me first to go and bury my father. And friends, I just want to tell you, anytime we put anything else first, before our decision to follow Jesus, we have gotten our priorities out of order. If you're holding out on following Jesus because you say you've got something else to do first, then you have missed the mark, my friends. Jesus is worth more than your holy seconds. Nothing must compete with him. Jesus deserves and Jesus demands more than delayed discipleship. And I say to you, don't let your salvation get stranded on someday aisle. Because anytime we delay obedience to Christ for the sake of some other priority, we are not giving him the worth that he is due. You may say, someday I'll follow Christ. Just let me get a handle on this part of my life. Or, or let me get that position at work. Or just let me get through this education or let me get through this busy season of life then i'll follow him my friends someday may never come the day to follow him is today jesus responds to this man in verse 60 allow the dead to bury their own dead but you as for you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of god you see, Jesus didn't come to tend to the dead. Jesus came to give life. Jesus didn't come to plant a cemetery. Jesus came to plant a church. And yet, I fear that so many of us are tending to the things of this world which are passing away. We're grooming the graveyard when we should be proclaiming the kingdom of God. We've already seen back in verse 6 that this phrase, the kingdom of God, is a synonym for the gospel. People need life. People are dying real deaths without the Savior. Let us not get caught up in the graveyard of dead things when there's a real need for life. Don't get caught up in religious traditions thinking that's all he wants for you. Pursue the things which bring life. Give your life to the living Savior. Let him lead you from day to day into something new and don't settle for delayed discipleship. The man in this account sensed that his heart was stirring him to get out of his spiritually dead surroundings and to follow the true living God in the flesh. But he was reluctant. He was bound by traditions. He was delaying his response the old life had a hold of him, and he wasn't ready to break free. But if he didn't break free at that moment with a direct 
command from the Lord in person. The reality is he would probably never break free. And the same may be true for each and every one of you. Maybe you sensed at some point in the past or maybe you sense even now that the spirit of God is stirring in your heart and calling you to respond in following Jesus and entrusting your life to him maybe you sense that you've been devoted to dead things rather than to the living God if that's you then I say come now trust him now abandon the dead things come to life receive Christ and find all the riches of God available to you through Him. You do not know what tomorrow holds. Don't delay in coming to Him and following Him. Jesus gave this man a direct command. Any other excuse was insufficient. And Jesus, in fact, has given all of us command to go and make disciples of all the nations. If you are His, if you've entrusted your life to Him, that command is for you this is the great commission for all of his followers and sometimes i'll hear individuals say something like you know god hasn't given me a desire to fulfill that need well let me say this if god's given you a command you don't need a desire in fact if god's given you a command i don't care what you desire follow him live in obedience to his word If our commitment to our religious obligations is greater than our commitment to Jesus Christ and his kingdom, we have gotten it wrong. You know, it's an important question for each of us to be asking here. Jesus said, lead the dead to bury their own dead. What what kind of things are you involved in in your life that, that a spiritually dead person could do on his or her own? I mean, what what kind of things are you devoting your life to that someone without the Spirit of God, someone without a relationship with Him could just come right in your wake and, and read a book or have a little short training session and be right on board carrying out the same things day in, day out that you're carrying out in your life? Because Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He calls us to living things. He calls us to a vibrant life in communion with His Spirit, living out what He's called us to do. And my friends, let us not get caught up in the things that dead folks can do, that the spiritually dead, those who do not know Christ, could be doing. Let us focus on what only His Spirit can empower us to do and ensure that we are pursuing His will in living the lives that we're called to live here today. Jesus deserves and demands more than your delayed discipleship. That's the second type of insufficient discipleship. Here's the third. Jesus deserves and demands more than your divided discipleship. In the third man we encounter in verses 61 and 62, once again, things look to be pretty good at surface level. I mean, this man comes to Jesus. He says, I will follow you. In fact, he even refers to Jesus as Lord Yet he goes on with two words that cause a big problem for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. He says, but first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Now that seems pretty innocent at its face value. But Jesus saw something dangerous in this man's attitude. 
We know that because he says no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, I just want to say this in what's going to sound like a humorous way, but hopefully it'll help drive, form, drive home the point of what I'm saying, all right? Having a big butt has kept a lot of people out of God's kingdom. Because you see this man, he's, he's right, on the, right on the page with Jesus. He says, I will follow you, but then he interjects this big butt. And he says, but first, let me go and do this thing. And anytime we, we take what Christ has called us to do and we say, I'll do that, but let me do something else with a higher priority. That big but we put in the way gets in the way of obedience to what Christ has called us to do. Now what's going on here? Is Jesus really saying that this man shouldn't even extend the common courtesy of saying goodbye to his family? Well, I don't think so. In fact, there's a similar sort of situation that we find in 1 Kings 19. That's where God calls the prophet Elijah to uh, anoint Elisha, the prophet, to be the Lord's prophet in his place. So Elijah goes to Elisha, and in verse 19, Elijah found Elisha plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and Elijah indicated that Elisha should follow him. What did Elisha do? Elisha left the oxen and he ran to Elijah and he said in verse 20, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. Now Elijah allowed Elisha, this prophet who was coming to follow the Lord by following him, to go and do that. But we also read that Elisha returned very quickly from going and doing that very thing. He goes and he prepares a meal and he says goodbye to his family. And in the same day, we find, in fact, in the same verse, we find that Elisha returns to Elijah and begins ministering to him. You know, returning to say goodbye for Elisha is not presented in the Bible in any way as a blight on Elisha's character. What causes us to realize that he didn't have the wrong motives, is the fact that he came back that very same day when he went to say goodbye to his family so that he could follow the Lord, Elisha didn't get distracted. He didn't find himself a good comfortable bed to camp out in for a few days. He didn't look back. He didn't let his family say, you know, Elisha, we really don't want you going out on this long journey of following Elijah. You should really just stay here. Don't let that influence draw you away from our family don't let it draw you away from a chance to be here and to care for us as we grow older and i believe that's what jesus is trying to warn this potential disciple about he's warning this disciple don't let relationships divide your discipleship don't go back to that family of yours at home and hear their words saying you've gotten too radical here man just tone it down a little bit yeah jesus has done some good things but really come on you don't want to be there when all this falls down. You don't, you don't want to commit yourself in this extremist sort of way, do you? You really don't want to leave everything behind to pursue him. Come on, let's just be practical. Let's be realistic here. We need you here. And that's a real danger for anyone who seeks to divide discipleship. Oftentimes, the family ties and the relationship ties in our life are some of the biggest risks that we face as we seek to pursue Christ. 
these are some of the, the, the greatest opportunities for us to, to find those who would draw us away from a willingness to obey God's call. And so I got, I got to say, don't let your relationships, don't let those you're associated with, don't let those who might say, don't go too extreme with this sort of thing, keep you from following the one who offers eternal life. This is a real danger for many individuals. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. For some individuals, it's so extreme that when they go and tell their families that they've decided to follow Christ, they may very well face the rejection that says, you walk out that door. Don't you ever expect to be welcome in this home again. But my friends, I want to tell you, Jesus is worthy of that. Jesus is worthy of pursuing And yet so often, I think, we let the relationships, we we worry about what's the co-worker going to think if if I bring this Jesus thing into work? What what, what are my folks going to think if if I really go all in 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 committing my life to Christ? And, and, And what we find is that we've gone back to the place. We've turned away from the plow We've looked back and we've stayed in that place where we once were when Jesus calls us to move forward. Jesus calls us to pursue him. Jesus calls us to follow. Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. At this point in Jesus' life, there's no turning back for him. He has determined that he is going to the cross. He is going to win the victory over death so that you can have life. And Jesus would not turn back in this moment. And yet for so many of us, there is this temptation that as we are plowing for him, we want to look back. And maybe for you, that's a looking back that says, you know, I've got a really nasty past. I've really done some stupid things in my past. And as you're going for Jesus, you're like, man, I'm just not worthy because of what I've done back there. You find yourself getting off track because of that. Or maybe, maybe in following Christ, you turned away from some things that really were not worthy of him. And yet, you, you still want to keep this little bit of a hint. Well, let, let, let me keep those associations. Let me keep those friends. Let, let me keep those habits. And just, just return back to those every once in a while. And what we find is that we are not pursuing Christ in the way that he calls us to pursue him as we look back in these ways. My friends, if you are in Christ, then all of your hope is ahead of you. All of your hope is not in the mistakes of your past. All of your hope is not in the things which maybe you enjoyed before. All of your hope is stored up in what he is preparing for you for eternity now. And so I say, stay steadfast and true to him. Follow him. Devote your life to him. And you know, if we as a church really wanted to build up a crowd... Perhaps we could promote ourselves as the easy church. You know, we'll cut you some slack. We could put some billboards out on the street. Just to say, hey, we've cut our services to 40 minutes and our sermons to 10 minutes. Some of you know that's never going to happen, right? (laughs) Maybe we could give folks a mulligan on a couple of the spiritual fruits or the Beatitudes. We could allow folks to choose just five commandments you want to observe instead of all ten of those. You know, we'll cut you a little slack. In fact, we could scale back our services to every other week and we could broadcast those services online so that you wouldn't even have to leave the comforts of your own couch. 
There might be some folks that would go for that sort of thing. But I tell you this, I'd rather have folks who go all in on Jesus any day of the week. He must be first. Nothing else should divide our allegiance and our devotion to him. That's not to say that we can never be devoted to anything else, but our devotion to anything else is tempered by our devotion to Jesus. He must be first. In Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33, we read Jesus saying, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so I say to you likewise, don't worry. What will my family think? Or what's my husband going to think? Or what will my friends think? Or how's it going to impact my career and my interactions with my coworkers? Seek his kingdom first and know that God's got the rest of it in his control. If he sees fit for you to honor your parents in their death after that point, he'll make a way. If he sees fit for you to express your love for those who are not desiring for you to go, he will make a way. If he sees fit for you to return to those places where you once were and to make a positive difference, then he will make a way. But the key is to have him always before us so that wherever we are going, we are following him we are pursuing his leading and if we are focused on him we won't look back even if he leads us into those past experiences and those past relationships Giuseppe Garibaldi is one of the greatest military generals in modern times I should say he was one of the greatest he he passed away in the late 1800s but through his conquest of Sicily and Naples He brought about a unification that would be known as the Kingdom of Italy in the 1800s. Now, when Garibaldi set out to free Italy from her enemies, he invited young men to join him in the battle. When those young men asked Garibaldi, what do you have to offer us? Garibaldi held nothing back. Offer, he said. I offer you hardship, hunger, rags, thirst, Sleepless nights, foot sores in the long marches, deprivations innumerable, and finally victory in the noblest cause that has ever confronted you. Surely there were some who considered this offer and decided to stay home. But those who considered and those who joined this noble cause were ready to face whatever came their way. They were ready to report for duty. They were ready to stand strong when this noble cause called them forth, even if it meant for them great sacrifice of themselves. And an army that steps forward with a steadfast commitment to endure hardships is a most noble cause, and that is an army that cannot be easily defeated. And my friends, Jesus is forming an army that will never be defeated. Jesus is calling for those who will join the most noble of all causes. Will there be dangers? Will there be perils? Will there be difficulties in life? Yes, yes, yes. But it will be all worth it all, my friends. Because Jesus offers to us 
in this greatest of all causes, a victory over all that is wrong with this earth. He's already won that victory, and he is coming again to bring about the manifest realization of that here in a new heaven and a new earth, and he will preserve his own in that new creation. And he calls you, my friends, to come by faith, to entrust your life to him, to find that his goodness will lead you And it may lead you into some tough places, but it will never forsake you. He will always be present, and his eternity is sure. And so let us, like the Italian army, which rallied around Garibaldi, rally around Christ, knowing that he who calls us to these tough things is leading us to a wonderful destination. If you've ever sensed that you were getting into something that required this sincere commitment, maybe maybe for you, you've never had that sense. Maybe you've never had that sense that I'm giving myself to, to such a high and noble calling. Maybe for you, Jesus was just a check on the box. Maybe for you, Jesus was just a matter of walking an aisle. Maybe for you, following Jesus was just a matter of praying a prayer. My friends, you've got to realize that what Jesus calls us to in discipleship is so much greater than that. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't leave us with vague realities of what he expects of those who would follow him. He doesn't leave us wondering what does a real disciple look like. He calls us to a real Life, a life that sacrifices all else, that is crucified to self and pursuing Him. And my friends, this is the life that we must be ready to commit ourselves to. You know what Jesus doesn't reveal for us? You know what Luke doesn't reveal for us in this passage? What each of those three individuals did. Luke doesn't tell us what these guys did after Jesus confronted them with His words. And I think the reason Luke does that is because Luke ultimately wants the answer to be, what are you going to do with these words? Are you going to pursue convenient discipleship? Are you going to pursue delayed discipleship? Are you going to pursue divided discipleship? Or are you going to come to him and say, Lord, here I am. Take me all that I am and guide me. Lord, maybe I've gotten some things wrong in the past. Maybe I'm in the wrong now, but I want to just devote myself to you, either for the first time or afresh and anew. My friends, he will honor that. He is worthy of that. And so let's close with a word of prayer. Father, help us not to settle for giving you the seconds of our devotion. Help us not to settle by delaying and pursuing you. Help us not to settle by expecting comfort when you've called us instead to faithfulness, which is expected to take us out of our comfort zones. Help us not to settle for divided allegiances, which say, let me, let me take care of these things first, and then I'll pursue you. God, help us to, to truly see you for who you are and for what you've granted to us and what you call us to and the noble cause that the victors share in. And let us, O oh Lord, pursue you in light of these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.